It was great to be able to celebrate Michael's induction yesterday. Uh, I want to take the opportunity this morning, Michael, to say how delighted I am to share a ministry with you. That's right, good. I'm really looking forward to working with you and with your family. Yesterday, you and David, in turn, talked about how God was at work in us as a church and in you quite independently to bring you down here to London. We were looking for a very specific kind of person. You were looking for a very specific kind of ministry. And although you were told that no such job existed, and we were told we'd never find a person to fit our specifications, God in his goodness has brought us together. It's a brilliant development for us as a church, and I hope and pray it will be equally brilliant for you and your family. Baptist ministers like chocolates come in a vast array of different flavours, but I sense that you are absolutely the right person for this church at this time. And while there may be some areas where our skill sets overlap, I think it's hugely beneficial that you bring a range of gifts that I do not have. So can I just say at this point in time, Michael coming to Brighton Road does not mean less work for me. <laughs> because if the leader of community evangelism does his job and inspires and equips us all to be more effective in sharing our faith, that will mean more people become Christians more people join the church, and that means more work for me as senior pastor. And I say, bring it on. But if we as Baptist ministers come in a bewildering range of different personality types and gifts, are there any core features that we should have in common? And the Baptist Union has drawn up a list of these, I won't bore you running through them all, but one of the things that they say is that every Baptist minister does what we do because we have a clear sense of being called by God into this ministry. It's not a career choice, certainly not a good career choice, but it is a vocation. And there's a, there is a sense in which God has said, this is what I want you to do with your life. This is how I want you to serve me. This is how I want you to live. Doesn't let the rest of you off the hook. Whatever job you have, whatever role you play, whatever you will be doing at this time tomorrow on Monday morning, you'll be doing it for God. God calls you to do it wholeheartedly as an act of service to others and as an expression of worship to him. All of our lives, 24-7, are to be dedicated to God as an expression of our worship. He's redeemed every part of us. But for some people, God steps in, calls us by name, and says, actually, for you, in your case, I want you to serve me this way. And some of the people God calls are really quite unlikely candidates. But top of the list for unlikely candidates has to be Saul of Tarsus, who was vehemently and violently opposed to Jesus and his followers and did his best to stamp out the church. And his first letter to Timothy contains reflections on that period of his life. He talks about blaspheming the name of Christ, persecuting Jesus' followers out of a sense of overweening pride and arrogance. And looking back, he is horrified at the things he did. Such depths of ignorance and unbelief. And he feels that he was the worst of sinners, but Christ met him. 
Christ turned his life around. And so he can hold himself up as an example of just how powerful and effective God's grace is in changing lives. He was saved because that's what Christ came to do. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he says, if he could save me, he can save anyone. No one is beyond the pale. No one is beyond salvation. And that had such a profound effect on Saul of Tarsus that he dedicated the rest of his life to making Jesus known. Had God not treated him with such forbearance, he would have struck him down as Saul himself had struck down so many of Jesus' followers. God could have treated him as he treated so many other people. There would have been an agreeable sense of justice about that. But that's not how grace works. Instead, God had mercy on him, redeeming rather than destroying his life and appointing him to his service. So as Paul looks back on his previous life as Saul, change of name, change of personality, change of the direction of his life, you look at Saul and he seems to exemplify everything that's bad about religion at that time. Committing atrocities in the name of God. Acting out of the unshakable conviction that he was absolutely right. Zealously persecuting and destroying anyone who disagreed with him. And when you see people whose dedication to God is manifested in acts of hatred and of violence, you can see why so many people just say, the world would be a better place without religion, wouldn't it? And that's because there have always been people who have misguidedly used religion to buttress their own power base, seeking divine authorization for their own program of domineering, controlling, or even destroying those around them. And Jesus was aware of this possibility. He says, look at the fruits of someone's life. By their fruits, you will know them. You can tell what kind of person you're dealing with by the kind of life that they live. Don't blindly follow anyone who claims religious authority. Look at the kind of person that they are. Look at how they live and they treat other people. Do they look like a follower of Jesus or not? Lots of things that are purportedly done in the name of Jesus have nothing to do with Christ at all. And he warns people that he will disown those who claim his name but deny following him in terms of how they live. But if you've had a bad experience with religion, it's all too easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater and assume that's how all religious people behave. God is just bad news, we're better off without him. But there's a logical misstep there. Think about it. Just because some people post fake reviews of hotels or businesses online, that doesn't mean to say that every review you read is rubbish. Just because there's a lot of dross out there doesn't mean that the genuine article does not exist and is not of infinite worth and value when you find it. There is plenty that is done in the name of God that has nothing to do with God. But when you find the true and living God, it's like finding treasure hidden in a field. It's worth giving up everything to make your own.
So Paul, looking back, sees himself as then ignorant, self-opinionated, intolerant of others, violent, certain that he was right. All factors which typify religion at its very worst. And what changed him? Meeting Jesus and finding that the grace of the Lord was poured out on him in abundance with a good measure of faith and love thrown in as well. Grace, faith, love. These things were poured out into my life, he says. And they're all rich, deep, meaningful words. And they are all hallmarks of the genuine article when it comes to recognising whether or not people have set their hearts on following Christ, rather than working to their own agenda or being driven by some kind of unhealthy religious zeal. Grace. Faith. Love should be hallmarks of us here at Brighton Road. Grace is about mercy and forgiveness. When God showed mercy to Paul, he redeemed him instead of condemning him. Empowered him to serve others rather than lording lording it over them. That was grace. In a world of anger and intolerance and violence and hatred, where God enables people to turn the other cheek, not treat them as they have treated you, that's grace. Where people are enabled to show love and compassion on others, when the instinct is just to look out for themselves, that's grace. Where God treats us far better than we deserve and enables us to treat others the same way, that's grace where forgiveness is shared, where wounds are healed, where lives are turned around and redeemed. That's God's grace in action. Read the Gospels. When Jesus, in the course of his ministry, lived and breathed grace, when the Holy Spirit comes into someone's life or community, he always brings grace. And we are all called to be ambassadors of the liberating, life-changing grace of God. And when we fail to do that, as we do, the grace of God is there for us then as well. Faith, that's another big word. It's a humble faith and trust in Christ that releases his grace into our lives. We're not living out of our own depleted, inadequate resources, but we are trusting in the grace of Christ to enable us to do what God calls us to do. And first and foremost, Christianity is not about what I can do for Jesus, it's about accepting what Jesus has done for me. That's the starting point. He gave his life to redeem you from your sins, to put you right with God, to turn you around, to take all the rubbish out of your heart and to replace it with his spirit of grace and love and power. Like shepherds, we can't change our own spots. But faith in the grace of God invites the Lord to change us from the inside out, for God to do for us what we cannot do ourselves. It's interesting, looking back 
on his days as a persecutor of the church, Paul says, I was acting out of unbelief. That's a surprising assessment of such a religious person. But it has been said that one of the problems of those who are overzealous in their religion is that they're trying to do God's work for him. And if you feel that your God needs protecting and defending and needs you to take up weapons to fight for him, then maybe your God is just too small. Because faith recognises that the greatness of the Lord is such that he's quite unfazed by stuff that people say or do against him. And while we we might hear things that upset us as his followers, God is more than capable of fighting his own corner if it comes down to it. Just recognise the greatness and the majesty of God. He is not affected if people say they don't believe in him, behave as if he doesn't exist, even if they blaspheme his name. He is above all of that. Doesn't need you to fight for him. Just trust that he's big enough to take care of himself, because he is. He's big enough to take care of you as well. But Saul couldn't see that at the time. He had to go out and and fight and try and destroy people he felt were opposed to God. But he got it badly wrong. Faith recognises the greatness and the majesty of God. And what's the ultimate test of faith? Different for everyone, I guess, but perhaps the ultimate test surely is that God will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life. That's a big thing to believe. Something way beyond human capability and comprehension. It's the faith that Paul Bishop had and which has now been realised. Eternal life, restoration, salvation in the presence of God. And it's a personal faith, not just kind of believing in eternal life as some abstract idea out there, but when my time comes, that Jesus will be there for me. That for me, a grave or the crematorium will not be the end, but God will raise me to life just as he raised Jesus triumphant from the grave. And there's no way that any of us can do that for ourselves. Death and taxes, two of life's inevitable, unavoidable things. The only way that I'm going to get to eternal life is if God does it for me. And therefore it has to be a matter of faith. Trusting that God, you will raise me up from this mortal life and from death to life with you in eternity forever. And it's not faith in the sense that I I try and persuade myself really, really hard that this is going to happen, but faith in the sense I just recognise that God is completely faithful and God is completely trustworthy. And if God has promised that's what he's going to do, then that is what he's going to do. And so I can entrust my life to him trusting that he will be faithful and not fail me at the end. And my salvation doesn't depend on how strong my faith is. My salvation depends on his utter trustworthiness. 
and God's gift of eternal life to you doesn't rely on your own rather wobbly faith, but on his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why, in a sense, faith is God's gift. And if our faith is weak, rather than asking for more faith, we should be saying, Lord, enable me to see more clearly just how good and faithful and trustworthy and loving you are. Because the more he makes himself known to us, the more we're able to trust him. Because ultimately what happens to us is not the quality of our faith, but the quality of God's faithfulness to us. And Paul is a bit overwhelmed at the way which, despite the kind of person that he'd been, the Lord had considered him sufficiently faithful to appoint him to his service. God shows his faithfulness. Paul puts his faith in Christ. Christ gives him the faithfulness he needs to serve God. The same for us. God shows his faithfulness to us when we are faithless. We put our trust in him and we find something of God's faithfulness in our own lives. And when God called Paul and in Christ poured out his grace into his life, he also poured out his faith, anchoring Paul's identity not in what he might try and achieve for God, but rather in what God had done for him in Christ. Anchor your faith in what God has done for you in Christ. And God will be there for you when you need him at the end. Grace, faith, love. God poured out his love into Paul's heart and the knowledge that he was loved by God liberated him into living a life characterised by love rather than by hatred, anger or fear or whatever else had driven him beforehand. He was able to come close to keeping the greatest commandment, loving God with everything he had, because he knew how much God loved him. That's the key to it. The most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And God doesn't tell us to do that because he wants to set that bar so high that we're all going to fail. God tells us to do that because that is how much he loves us with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. And when we know just how much God loves us, that liberates us in reflecting that love back to God because God is the greatest good we can have in our lives. And for Paul, knowing just how much he was loved by God, that liberated him into loving others with the kind of love that he himself had received from God. That is how the love of God works. Love your neighbour as yourself. What's the key to that? Loving your neighbour as you yourself have been loved by God. God sets the bar high, but his love is the key to coming close to it. So God God called Paul in grace and faithfulness and love. And God poured out his grace and faith and love into Paul's heart and called him to serve others in grace and faithfulness and love. And Michael, the God who called Paul, has called you and me to work alongside each other in grace and faithfulness and love. And in partnership with you in grace and faithfulness and love. And what about you? Is your life marked by grace and faith and love? Or when you look inside, do you not see those qualities? 
Are you driven by more negative forces? And if so, that's not how God wants you to be. Because the gospel that turned Paul's life around can do the same for you. Christ gave his life for you to redeem your life for all eternity. And Christianity starts not with what you can do for God, but in accepting what Christ has done for you. To redeem you and set you free from all the negative stuff that's accumulated in your heart over the years. Giving his life for you to be your Lord and Saviour. And inviting you to give your life to him as your Lord and Saviour. And accepting the grace and the faith and the love he wants to pour out into your heart. The offer of salvation holds good for you. Holds good for anyone who believes. Because as Paul might well have said, if the Lord can do it for me, he can do it for anybody. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Paul thought he was the worst, but Christ saved him. Christ can save you as well. So how do we respond? We can simply say that the chorus of the old hymn, into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. That might be the turning point. It might be taking communion, recognising, yes, I know Jesus died, but he died for me to forgive me, to make me a child of God. Or you might want to talk and pray with Michael or someone else wearing a prayer badge or with me before you go. Just making that commitment to God and inviting him to fill your life with his grace, with his faithfulness and with his love. But as we come to the Lord's table, let's do so and prepare ourselves to receive communion by singing, he gave his life in selfless love. Two, three, two, zero.